0: Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today, I'm joined by Chris Bearcat, who has a master's degree in exercise and nutrition sciences. He's an adjunct professor and human performance researcher at the University of Tampa, and an excellent source of information for bodybuilding, training, and nutrition. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me, my man. I'm looking
1: forward to this.
0: Yeah, so in terms of, we were just talking about this off air, but uh, Chris is uh, has received a lot of attention recently in his uh, expertise in the, the area of body recomposition. And I know this is an area of interest for a lot of people. So we will just touch on this very little, very briefly, but then we are going to move on to some more nutrition-based topics for our
1: listeners today. For sure. Yeah, man. So uh, this, this past year, I believe in September, it was uh, finally accepted and, and published, but we came out with a paper called body recomposition can train individuals, uh, build muscle and lose fat at the same time. And obviously, everyone in the fitness industry talks about recomposition, to a certain extent. um, It's been used for marketing purposes, whether it's the supplement industry, whether it's the, you know, some sort of influencer trying to sell a training program or whatever it may be, everybody does want to improve their overall body composition. And one thing that started to bother me over the last seven to 10 years is um, I feel like a lot of us in the evidence based fitness community started getting caught in these echo chambers where we started oversimplifying muscle building and fat loss. And you would constantly hear people say, Yeah, you need to be in a calorie surplus to build muscle, and need to be in a calorie deficit to lose fat. And uh, just simply not that simple. <laughs> and um, that echo chamber really started to bother me because there are so many people that can recomposition to a pretty significant degree. And if they don't know, they have the ability to do so. um, They probably start approaching their training and or nutrition um, in a manner that might be suboptimal for what their actual goal is. Mm -hmm.
2: Um,
1: So an example of that may be, let's just say you take somebody that is, let's say you take a male that's 18% body fat, um, isn't, trained, but is moderately trained, you know, has some experience in the gym, um, and really wants to improve his body composition with the primary goal being, you know, lose fat, um, perhaps they go into a caloric deficit, that's just a bit too aggressive, um, where it's actually hard for them to sustain that, um, that magnitude of a deficit, mm-hmm. and their training performance in the gym starts taking a hit. So their ability to perform, isn't where it could be if their calories were higher, and let's just say they're at theoretical maintenance or whatever. Um, that can actually drive a better recomposition effect than mm-hmm. just being in this aggressive deficit, um, because you still want to build muscle. You don't want to just focus on fat loss. So, mm-hmm. yeah, man, that's why this this recomposition thing became so passionate, um, to, you know, a topic of mine that I'm so passionate about, and it was something I constantly saw with my clients. I, I typically put my clients. At around theoretical maintenance to start, and see what happens to their body weight as well as their waist circumference measurements, their progress photos, get feedback from them, and then I would just see recomp happen all the time, in a host of you know in, in a wide array of different demographics. I'm like, all right, we we need to have more scientific literature talking about this. Hmm. Yeah, I think
0: that it's uh, easy to fall into the trap of the, or the the way of thinking that Recon really only applies to like a small part of the population. But I think even even though people might use um, labels, like, I don't know, maybe maybe it's more applicable to people who are earlier off in their training. I think when you think about it, it actually applies to the vast majority of people, you know, in fitness. And if you just walk into a, a community gym, I think most people in there are going to be um, sort of able to access this kind of uh, strategy. So I guess, as a broad question, um, if someone's s- starting out, how do you decide as to what they should be doing in terms of their initial uh, overall calories in terms of starting off with a surplus, a main, uh,
1: maintenance calories or deficit and, and what yeah. size? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, generally speaking, um, I'm going to ex- exclude like the obese population right now. So let's just say you you are, you know, a little bit overweight, you definitely have a a decent amount of body fat to lose, but you're not like extremely obese. Um, I like starting off a lot of my clients actually around theoretical maintenance. So I might use something like the Mifflin St. Jor formula, um, get a better idea of what their lifestyle and and activity is like, um, and then just start them off at theoretical maintenance with a change to their macronutrient prescription right what their daily targets are as well as how they go going about actually reaching those targets on a day-to-day basis you know um, if it was someone who is only having two meals per day i probably do increase their meal frequency to at least three and probably a max of six mm-hmm. um, but we start manipulating a lot of different variables depending on what they've been doing and what can improve um But generally speaking, I like starting people off at around theoretical maintenance. I am an advocate of very high protein diets. And then I just kind of optimize their their protein fats and carbs, start giving them some guidelines in regards to hey, this is how you should approach your diet. And then we see how those adjustments actually um, essentially show up on the scale weight, as well as their progress photos and their circumference measurements. So based off that, can only be just two weeks at maintenance, I can get a pretty good idea of what's going on. Do they need more fuel coming in? Or do they need uh, less fuel coming in to get the desired result we're looking for?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, um, yeah, and I guess the question about recomp itself, if someone's goal is to recomp, and let's say they're sort of in that maybe 15 to 18% body fat range, in terms of the size of deficit where recomp is still viable. Uh, How would, what what are your thoughts on that? And is there anything different than just running a straight cut and assuming that you will be able to build muscles well as long as all other variables are optimized?
1: Sure. Yeah, um, generally speaking, I would say a, a smaller, less aggressive deficit is going to be more advantageous just because you're going to be able to maintain or improve your training performance um, with a smaller deficit compared to a larger one. And therefore, you should be able to stimulate those positive adaptations that we're looking for in regards to the muscle cell and muscle growth, not fat loss. So Mm -hmm. your rate of loss might be slower from a fat perspective, but your overall body composition can be improving to a larger degree with a smaller deficit. So I mean i don't love um putting numbers on it but just for general you know discussion purposes i kind of will um but i would just say like a 250 calorie deficit is going to be more advantageous if your goal is recomp compared to a 500 calorie deficit
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: yeah and and do you like do you like
0: to quantify deficits in terms of say percent of body body scale weight loss or percent of calorie deficit
1: yeah it's this is interesting. So this is where it becomes more of an art of coaching somebody rather than a mathematical equation or a science, so to speak. Um, I'm actually someone who kind of hates that 500 calorie rule um, because there is a massive difference when you have a 130 pound female that's maintaining their body weight on 2,500 calories and slashing off 500 calories from that single person. So taking them from 2,500 to 2,000, compared to a male that's maybe 180 pounds and maintaining their weight on 3,300 calories and then dropping them to 2,800. Even though it's a 500 calorie slash from a percentage based of their total caloric intake, it's way more significant for that smaller female than it is for the male. So um, it's, it's hard to just give these black and white recommendations, right? But um, generally speaking, I like the rate of loss. Um, if you are in a cut, to be at around you know 0.5 to one percent of total body weight mm-hmm.
0: okay yeah and then in a couple of special situations i guess what are your recommendations um for people starting off who are say in that really skinny zone or people who are fairly lean but also have very little uh, muscle mass
1: and also for the obese population sure Yeah, so so for skinny individuals, you know, might not have a lot of training experience, kind of just getting started. Um, You're starting off pretty lean, but so far away from your genetic potential, when it comes to your muscle building capabilities. Um, There, I definitely recommend being in a pretty substantial surplus. Um, I would say, you know, depending again on the context, but if you're someone who's really skinny, um, 500 calorie surplus is is going to be a, a good starting point for you. You know, you don't, You don't want to accumulate unnecessary amounts of fat, but you can be um, pretty surprised at what the rate of muscle gain may look like for some beginner individuals that are just getting started. So Mm -hmm. um, you're you're way better off being in a significant surplus where you actually see your scale weight going up every week to a Mm -hmm. certain degree, uh, rather than that scale weight kind of just staying the same and you're not sure if you're spinning your wheels uh, or not. Mm-hmm. So that was actually my issue when I first started training, uh, about 11, 12 years ago. Um, I spun my, my wheels for years, man. I was probably 135 to 145 pounds. Um, I was training pretty hard. I, I was not training smart, but I was training pretty hard from an effort standpoint. And mm-hmm. I simply just wasn't eating enough calories. Um, let alone the macronutrients might not have been perfect, but, um, my calories just were, were not where they needed to be. And and I did not gain weight because of that. And therefore I limited my body's ability to actually build muscle.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then how
0: about for the uh, obese population or yeah, in terms of rates of
1: loss or for the obese population, that's where the rates of loss can be a bit more aggressive. So rather than sticking between that 0.5% and 1% of total body weight um, decreasing each week, you can go as high as 2%, um, but usually it's like between 1.5 and 2.0%. So let's just say you have a uh, 300-pound individual. um, It's okay for them to lose like six pounds per week for the first few weeks, and then that rate of loss should slow down. Um, where you would never want to see that on someone who's like 180 pounds and they're dropping to 172, like in a week or so. Right. So um, yeah, their rate of loss can definitely be a bit more aggressive because they have such a substantial amount of energy reserves that they can tap into um, for all their metabolic processes. And I believe as long as protein intake, is pretty high. They can still be in this environment where they can build muscle simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Great.
0: Yeah. And then moving on, um, what are your thoughts on an optimal body fat percentage range that athletes should be staying in sort of
1: year round? Sure. Um, Is this more for like uh, bodybuilders or yeah, for bodybuilders? Yeah. So I would say for, for men, um, it definitely ranges, but I know people that maintain 10% body fat pretty effortlessly. Um, So it can be anywhere between 10 and 15. And then you obviously have some genetic outliers where they they feel great at like 8.5%, 8%. and They can kind of maintain that. Um, And then you also have some people that just feel way better when they're maybe at 16 or 18%. But I would say 10 to 14% is a pretty solid um, body composition range that most people feel comfortable in. Uh, Their hormones are usually in a pretty good spot within that range. And a lot of people talk about the negative adaptations that occur hormonally when people diet down and get really, really lean, mm-hmm. um, but they don't talk about the negative adaptations that occur when your body fat starts actually creeping up a bit higher than what it should be. Um, and that can actually have some some negative effects as well. So it's, it's good to stay in that 10 to 15 range for a lot of males. Um, for females, again, depending on the sport and what their activity level is like, um, it could be, you know, as lean as 18% and probably uh, no higher than like 26, 28%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and talking about those
0: negative adaptations, when you're at higher body fat percentages, can mm-hmm. you speak more on those?
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, as body fat accumulates, we know that insulin sensitivity decreases. So your ability to, you know, efficiently utilize all the carbohydrates that are in your diet may decrease. Um, you might even see that from a biofeedback standpoint where you have a you know decently sized uh, meal and you feel really tired and sleepy after that meal. Um, whereas maybe when you're leaner, that never really used to happen. Um, you may even realize that your pumps in the gym aren't as significant as they used to be when you were a tad leaner. Um, so perhaps you're not really partitioning those nutrients into the muscle cell as, if, as efficiently as you used to when you're a bit leaner. Um, so those can be some negatives. Also, um, although body fat is really important for testosterone, like we know male bodybuilders, their testosterone levels tank um, when they're in a contest prep and when they're mm-hmm. when they're contest lean, um, your body fat, uh, sorry, your your testosterone levels can also start to decrease once body fat levels accumulate a bit too high so there is this this essential range where you're at your best and more isn't always better by any means so those are just two two basic hormones right so just looking at insulin sensitivity and then looking at testosterone as an example
0: yeah Yeah. for sure
1: is there any any, anything that you would mention yeah i mean yeah i like
0: i mean i just i think it's It's, uh, there's been uh, this sort of rebound sometimes when uh, people in in bodybuilding will say, don't be, don't be afraid of putting on weight, you know, Um, and, and, and it's okay to be fluffy in the off season. Um, But I also feel that it's, it's easy to go overboard with this. And as you mentioned, there are some uh, negative things that come to play. And I think just from a health standpoint, I really like the idea of people being on the leaner end of things, if possible. So I think I think it's awesome. Um, I le- like I love the ten to fifteen percent sort of range for males, and sort of ten percent above that for females. Um, yeah. What measures do you like to use for people uh, in terms of, say, visual markers or other things for them to to know that they're in this range?
1: Yeah. So something that's super interesting is how we all distribute our body fat yeah. differently. Um, some people their midsection stays relatively lean and a lot of their body fat goes to their their legs their glutes their back whatever it may be Um, and then other individuals like myself personally i store most of my body fat around my low back like love handles and abdominal area Um, whereas like my hamstrings and quads stay pretty darn lean Uh, my back stays very lean and stuff like that so um, depending on the individual like I don't necessarily like using like oh do you have a six pack or a four pack to kind of determine body fat percent um, because that distribution can be so different for everyone. But you can you should be able to guesstimate and then you should be able to access some form of body composition assessments that are you know within three to five percent. So whether that's a bioelectrical impedance machine or if you're using skin calipers or if you have access to something like an in body or a DEXA, whatever it may be um, using progress photos are a great tool. And then also utilizing something like skin calibers can also be a really helpful tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Great. So shifting gears and moving on a little bit more to some more uh, in-depth nutrition topics Uh, maybe starting off now that we've talked about overall calories going into macros. a little bit specifically about protein. What are your thoughts on protein uh, composition and quality?
1: Yeah. Um, So like I mentioned earlier, I'm a huge advocate for high protein diets. Um, It just seems like there's essentially no negatives to it and uh, a lot of potential upsides of consuming more protein. So from a quantity standpoint, um, I generally recommend a range from 1.2 grams to 1.6 grams of protein. Per pound of lean body mass. So you do need to guesstimate what your current body fat percentage um, is. So you can determine how much lean body mass you have, and then use that 1.2 to 1.6 multiplier. Um, And I will say the leaner you are, the closer to 1.6 you can be. And the heavier you are, the more body fat you have, the closer to that 1.2 you can be. Um, And then from there, I mean, I'm also a fan of multiple protein feedings per day. So um, I I really don't have any of my clients doing fewer than three meals per day, but most of them have four to five, and then nobody really consumes more than six meals per day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of uh,
0: choosing your protein, uh, what do you think about in terms of choosing protein
1: sources, um, say, and Yeah. So in regards to protein sources, you definitely want to consume something that has all nine essential amino acids. Um, it's really easy to do that. If you're eating animal protein, you already know that you're going to have all of your essential amino acids in that food source. So typically each meal does contain some, some animal source, whether it's a whey protein powder, um, a dairy product or something like chicken, beef, uh, steak, eggs, whatever it may be. Um, I do a decent amount of salmon and stuff like that. But generally speaking, depending on what your daily protein target is for the day, um, I like dividing that equally and spreading out my protein relatively equally throughout all my meals. So if you're having five meals per day, and you're at 200 grams of protein for the day, you're going to have about what what was that 30 grams per meal? Right? So (laughs) you're just going to evenly distribute that throughout. Um, And then another thing I wanted to mention for everybody who tracks all of their macronutrients, right? A lot of uh, something that I see happens is a lot of people keep their protein stagnant in the same, whether they're bulking or cutting, right? So they take that, that random number, let's say it's 200 grams of protein And they're eating 200 grams of protein, whether they're in a surplus and they're having 500 carbs per day, or they're in a deficit and they're having 250 carbs per day. Mm -hmm. And my biggest issue with that is you're actually consuming a lot less animal protein and complete essential amino acids when you're in that bulking phase and your total is 200 grams per day because you're getting so much trace protein from these carbohydrate sources and these other food sources that aren't actual protein sources. So in those situations, um, you might like you are hitting 200 grams for the entire day, but the quality of protein is lower than it is when you're dieting. And I believe while you're in the surplus, you actually want to increase your protein intake as your carbs go up to ensure that you're consuming the same amount of animal protein per day.
0: Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. No, I think that does for sure. Yeah, I like I, I personally like the idea of sort of eyeballing things in terms of always just putting that protein source on your plate, and then having that having that stay constant throughout whether you're bulking or, or uh, in fat loss, and then yeah. manipulating yeah your other macros. I think that's definitely something to consider.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think um, the really old school approach of bodybuilding where they would use meal plans. Um, in some ways it was, it was terrible because you had no flexibility and you had to follow this very strict regimen. Right. Um, But one thing I will say is when they go into a deficit, right, let's say you you take this bodybuilder and they're in their off season and they're having six meals a day of these, these certain food sources. Um, Let's just say it's like rice, broccoli, and chicken. Let's just say they do that over and over and over. Right. Um, Once they get into their, their fat loss phase, they would keep that, that protein source the same size. So if it was six ounces or eight ounces, you keep that animal protein source at the same quantity. And then you usually just pull or you decrease uh, the amount of carbohydrate you're consuming, right? So now instead of doing a cup and a half of rice, you're just doing a cup of rice, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And their total protein was going down for the day because they're losing a little bit of trace proteins but they were keeping their animal proteins the same. And uh, I think that's something that kind of got lost when a lot of people transitioned to, if it fits your macros or flexible dieting and and macro counting, um, they didn't realize how much trace protein they're consuming through all these other food sources.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And moving on to carbs, what are your recommendations in terms of uh, different carb sources?
1: Yeah. Um, Generally speaking, I like lower glycemic carbs. Um, Typically, that's just going to provide you with more stable blood glucose levels, you're going to have smaller increases in insulin. And therefore, you're going to also have um, way less significant crashes. So your energy levels are usually going to be a bit better. Um, Another thing that's really interesting When you're having a lot of processed carbohydrates or high glycemic carbohydrates, and you have that spike in insulin and that crash in insulin, you also have this additional kind of feedback sequence where your hunger starts to increase due to a hormonal cascade that occurs. So a lot of people that are eating high glycemic foods, even if the carbohydrate amount and caloric amount is exactly the same, they will feel more hungry Um, compared to those that are having lower glycemic carbohydrate sources. So um, I think that's really important for people who might not be tracking to the Mm T and or um, just don't have the greatest, you know, willpower and discipline to stay on track. Um, I think a lot of people are kind of fighting against their own goals and making things a bit harder on themselves um, by not making the best food source food source choices. So yeah, uh, generally speaking, I'm I'm a big fan of low glycemic carbohydrates, especially pre workout, um, that's going to, again, provide you with more stable levels of blood glucose. Um, and you're not really going to crash in the gym. Whereas a lot of people if they have a processed or high GI meal pre workout, um, they might actually go hypoglycemic in the gym and feel really tired, kind of feel really crappy midway through that workout. So that's one recommendation I make in regards to food sources, but we can totally dive down that rabbit hole a bit deeper if you'd like. Yeah.
0: So really disappointed that I can't just do pop tarts, uh, six meals a day, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyways. Yeah. Um, what So what's your um, stance on partitioning between carbs and fats
1: and what proportions of each you like? Sure. Um yeah, something that I that I do practice and I do implement um, that may be you know, kind of viewed as a bit a bit bro or whatever people want to label it as is I actually do have a lot of clients um, have one meal per day that is primarily fats, fibrous, vegetables, so very, very low carb and high protein, um, like high fat, very, very low carb, high protein meal. Um, and I think that just gives their body an opportunity to kind of utilize a different fuel for a very short period of time as their primary fuel source. Obviously, obviously we, we all are utilizing glucose as our primary fuel source unless we're in a ketogenic state, right? Dietary ketosis. Um, but something that we do, especially in like this this more modern culture is we're constantly having carbs in every single meal and we're never giving our body uh, kind of a break from processing that, whether it's, again, secreting more insulin to deal with it. Um, I do like having some meals that are very high fat, very low carb, and higher in protein, um, just to kind of shift your metabolism from a very acute standpoint. And then uh, there's usually this inverse relationship. So your uh, higher carbohydrate meals can be lower in fat, and your um, higher fat meals should be a little bit lower lower in carb. Uh, I never really prescribe macronutrients based on a like percentage. So um, I'm not sure if you're kind of looking at like, Oh, I generally recommend having, you know, 20% of your diet coming from fat or something like that. I have, a I have more of a range in the scale depending on a lot of situations. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess
0: the, the, the question that comes out of it more is like, um, like thoughts on low fat, high carb bulking, which has been you know, uh, touted
1: by a lot of bodybuilders. Yeah. Um, I do think, you know, that's applicable. Um, I, I don't say, I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with a low fat, high carb approach in the off season, as long as you're getting in enough fat where you're having your essential fatty acids that you need. Um, I, I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with that, but I would also say it's really silly and, and almost counterintuitive and, uh, not very logical if you're someone who's very sedentary, Um, maybe you resistance train for 60 to 90 minutes a day, but you're sitting behind the desk for the other eight hours of your work shift. And you're really getting in no movement otherwise. Um, in those situations, I think it's, it's suboptimal and, and, um, really not warranted to take that low fat, high carb approach. But, you know, if you're someone who is really physically active, let's say you have a pretty, uh, you know, physically demanding job, um, and your bodybuilding and your training, then yeah, um, you should have less fats in your diet and a a larger percent of your total diet makes sense for that to come from carbohydrate. Um, so if you want, I can briefly talk about how I kind of set up macronutrients and, um, essentially how that sliding scale kind of works. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So going back to what you kind of originally asked, um, how I set people up at maintenance to start, Once Mm -hmm. I figure out someone's caloric goal that I want to put them at, I usually determine protein right after that. And again, I use that 1.2 to 1.6 grams per pound of lean body mass range. Once their protein is set, I then set their fats next. And the way I set their fats is based off their current body composition and their lifestyle. So Hmm. fat intake typically ranges from 20% of total calories all the way up to 35% of their total calories. Okay. And for those that are um, less physically active and more sedentary, they're going to be on the slightly higher end of the scale from their total fat intake, especially if their starting body composition is on the higher end, if they have higher levels of body fat, mm-hmm. and that's because they're generally less insulin sensitive. Now, for a leaner individual that is very physically active, they're going to be way closer to that twenty percent of their total calories coming from fat, and then the rest of their calorical is just being filled in by the carbohydrates that remain. Um, so, I think it's really important to take your lifestyle factors into consideration as well as your current body your current body composition um, when determining what macronutrient setup makes makes the most sense for you mm-hmm. yeah. yeah great that i think that's a really good way
0: to think about it um and uh coming back to the the yeah the carbs versus fats thing i think a lot of people um overestimate the the sort of uh physical demand that bodybuilding training sort of does take on the grand scale of things um where you know people talk about like loading up their carbs for their workouts and glycogen stores and all that when i mean when you're in the gym for an hour hour and a half it's not that much compared to say like a marathon or triathlete or something like that absolutely absolutely yeah maybe circling in deeper and going on to nutrient timing now Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of uh, protein uh, what's your thought on the sort of maximum protein bolus that is that can be, uh, you know, utilized effectively. I know that's a common question people ask.
1: Sure, yeah, um, there's definitely that misconception where it's like, oh, you could only utilize 30 grams of protein in one meal. Um, first and foremost, it's it's going to be very dependent on the size of the individual and how much muscle mass they have. So if you have a 220 pound bodybuilder, that number is going to be way different than a 150 pound, you know, basketball player, whatever it may be. Um, But from what we understand, your body is going to digest all of that protein, uh, regardless of how large the bolus is. Um, But there surely seems to be an upper threshold in regards to how much protein is going towards the muscle protein synthetic response. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a figure that came out of, I believe, Stuart Phillips' lab, um, where they figured out the amount of leucine that you need per meal to maximize that protein synthetic response. And I believe it was 0.05 grams per kilogram of body weight. So again, it's relative to your body weight. Um, so just to provide some context, um, for someone like my size, I'm, I'm around 180 pounds right now, um, I would never really consume more than 70 grams in one meal. And most of the time, if I'm utilizing high-quality protein sources, um, forty to sixty is going to be plenty. You know, mm. if I'm using like thirty-five grams of a whey isolate, that's probably going to max out my MPS response. Um, but depending on what you're consuming, it can, it can range. So, yeah, for bigger people, I would just say no more than seventy really makes sense. Doesn't seem like any of that is going to serve a purpose for muscle recovery. Um, but your body will digest it. It's not like you're going to just excrete it out somehow.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Um, And then in terms of uh, distribution of different macronutrients throughout the day, um, what are your recommendations in terms of uh, different uh, partitions of carbs or fats?
1: Oh, sure. Um, Yeah, so generally speaking, um, your larger carbohydrate meals are typically around your workout window. Um, so that can be pre intra, and post. Um, some people utilize intra workout carbohydrates. Some people don't, um, if you're in an off season or you're in this surplus phase and you actually have a hard time gaining weight, I think that's a great opportunity for you to get more calories in, um, without it negatively impacting your appetite, so to speak. So those liquid carbohydrates can be just really easy to get down, right? If you drink. 35 grams of Gatorade inch workout, you don't really feel that. But um, mm-hmm. from a, a quantity standpoint, too, um, it depends on what your total intake is going to look like for the day. But a really good um, recommendation can be anywhere from like 0.8 to 1.2 grams of carbs per kilogram of body weight. So if you're like 70 kgs, um, probably having 70 grams of carbs or so in your pre-workout meal, that's mm-hmm. probably going to be appropriate for you to have enough fuel to, you know, really perform well and, and feel satiated, um, have consistent energy levels mm-hmm. and then post-workout, um, depending on how high your carbs are for the day, you can go a bit higher than that. So you might start at, um, one gram per kilogram of body weight and go up to 1.5 or, or even higher than that, mm-hmm. depending on how you're approaching the rest of the day. But um, you never want so much food before you train where it's taking you forever to digest that meal. And you're going into the gym with a lot of blood in your GI system. You're still full and uh, you're actually, you kind of need to put digestion on pause. So blood can travel to the muscles you're actually training. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do want to make sure that you give yourself enough time from that pre-workout meal to the time you go train.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And then how about um, thoughts on like, bedtime nutrition?
1: Bedtime nutrition? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's going to vary a little bit depending on what time of the day you train. Um, So let's just say you trained at 8am. Your bedtime meal might not have that much carbohydrate because you might have had breakfast at 6am a a lot of carbs post workout and had your carbohydrates throughout the day. So maybe that bedtime meal is just going to be very high protein, um, maybe moderate carb or low carb and higher fat, kind of depends. Um, But let's just say you worked that normal nine to five, um, you kind of train at 536, you have a post-workout meal at seven or eight, and then you're eating another like bedtime snack or something before bed. Um, That might be higher carb and higher protein, but no matter what, you definitely want to get in a full serving of protein before going to bed to ensure that you have amino acids coming in while you're sleeping, and that they're kind of helping with that repair and recovery processes that are occurring. So um, generally speaking, it's usually a minimum of 30 grams of protein um, pre-sleep, but it's gonna depend on the the size of the individual. Um, Sometimes I utilize a casein protein, uh, especially if my appetite's not really there and I just don't feel like eating whole food. I might just slam down a, a casein shake But you have a lot of options there. I think as long as you're getting in a sufficient amount of protein, um, you should be fine. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah, and I I know the
0: casein before bed has been a uh, is a common thing people ask. Um, And like, I guess my thought is there's there's you know like a theoretical benefit. Yeah, Um, and like I think it does make sense. Um, I guess how about the the idea of combining like if you people want to do just something that's very fast digesting, but just combining it with other food sources.
1: Yeah, that's totally an option. Um, Another thing that's interesting about the casein um, kind of talking points, right, is where, hey, it takes anywhere from three to five hours to digest, and you're going to have a sustained release of these amino acids into your blood plasma. Um, That's great in theory, and, and that is what occurs, because those Polypeptide change are so large with the casein proteins, but if you eat something like steak, mm-hmm. that's going to take a decent amount of time to digest as well. Anyway, yeah. so as long as you're having whole food, um, I wouldn't really say casein is more advantageous, um, but it's probably a better option pre-sleep compared to a way um, where that can only you know be in your bloodstream for sixty to ninety minutes, depending on what kind you're using. So, yeah, man, I think as long as you're getting whole foods and you're good and especially if that's like a higher fat meal, um, the fat's going to slow down the digestion and the absorption of those amino acids. So depending on what you eat, you can have those amino acids kind of being pulled into your bloodstream for a very long period of time, um, three, five, maybe even six hours. So of just depends what that meal looks like.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then a little bit more on the timing. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, carb cycling?
1: So Yeah. Um, I think carb cycling has its place um, in a lot of different scenarios. Um, I personally utilize this approach. I just call it logical carb cycling, where on my training days, where I'm more physically active, I have slightly higher carbs um, than I do on my non-training days. And on my non-training days, I have slightly less total calories for the entire day. Um, That's not how every everyone needs to approach it you can definitely take a static approach and have the same caloric intake daily um, but logically speaking if you're burning more energy one day it makes a lot of sense for you to intake a little bit more and i think if we took a step away from tracking um, our biofeedback signals would tell us hey let's eat a little bit more on days where we expend more energy because your appetite's just going to naturally increase um, so i take a very logical approach in that sense When you're dieting, um, you can be a little bit more um, complex with your carb cycling approach where now because you're in this sustained calorie deficit for a long period of time, even if you're doing higher carb uh, amounts on your training days and lower carb amounts on your non-training days, over time, you're really starting to deplete your skeletal muscle glycogen and your liver glycogen as you're in this sustained deficit. And mm-hmm. so that's when you probably want to implement um, some form of very high carbohydrate days or utilizing refeeds. Um, so a lot of my clients, you know, just generally speaking, they have training days and non-training days. and then someone who's in a calorie deficit and they're in a, in a fat loss focused phase, they have training days and non-training days. And then based on their biofeedback, their performance, their scale weight, they also get refeeds thrown in. So, those are just going to be higher calorie days that are putting them back at like theoretical maintenance and pulling them out of the deficit and utilizing those carbs to kind of refill some of that uh, lost muscle glycogen that's been depleted over a long period of time. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I guess moving on a little bit further into um in in terms of our nutrition here uh what are your thoughts on um just hydration and uh electrolytes is that something that come that you take into consideration i guess especially for people who are uh dieting or in contest prep
1: yeah that is massively important um so i would say the easiest way to have a bad training day is to be dehydrated to a certain extent right um not staying on top of your water intake is really, really detrimental to gym performance. Um, And it also plays a role in like nutrient assimilation and nutrient partitioning. If if you're not getting in enough fluid, um, you're not going to actually transfer those carbohydrates where they need to be and stuff like that. Um, I would also say that, this kind of, I wouldn't, it's always important. Hydration is always important. But one thing I will say is like in an off season, when you're in a calorie surplus, um, nutrient timing as a whole isn't as important um, compared to when you're in a deficit phase. So for example, let's say you take a bodybuilder who's been in a surplus for months now, their muscle glycogen is basically full at all times. Their body fat percent is higher. So they have plenty of energy reserves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you should be able to go into the gym, literally fasted with no fuel in your system, so to speak. As long as you're well hydrated, you should be able to train for 60 minutes in a resistance training fashion, without feeling bad. And you in your, in your off season. you should actually feel pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're someone who's been in a calorie deficit for an extended period of time, your nutrient timing and your pre workout nutrition becomes way more important because mm-hmm. the fuel you're eating before going into the gym is actually being used to support the training that you're doing. Whereas in your off season, you have so much uh, energy reserves to tap into, you should feel fine either way. So hydration is super important, regardless of whether you're in a deficit or a surplus, but nutrient timing becomes more important when you are in these deficit phases, for sure.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's definitely something that I noticed uh, going through contest prep and it especially becomes um, applicable when you reach that really, really low level of
1: body fat and you're just trying to survive in the gym. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And another thing that you might have noticed that I find fascinating is seems like uh, gastric clearance rates really change to, <laughs> yeah. uh, when you're dieting compared to when you're in a your surplus, right? So uh, let's just say you're in a calorie surplus, you're in the off season, you have a decent amount of body fat. Um, you can have a 600 calorie meal that's from you know, rice, broccoli, and chicken. And uh, you'll feel satiated for three hours, five hours, right? But uh, you have that same exact 600 calorie meal when you're shredded and you've been in a deficit for a long period of time. You might feel hungry in like 40 minutes or 30 mm-hmm. minutes after eating. Um, so it's really interesting to see how your body prioritizes digestion to a much larger extent when you're in this starvation phase, Yeah, where you're very lean and you've been dieted down for a very long period of time. So that's another thing that people need to take into consideration. A lot of people ask me, uh, hey, Chris, uh, how long should I wait after eating my pre-workout meal before going into the gym? And the answer is always, it depends. Um, it depends on the food sources you're eating, you know, um, how much fat and fiber are, is in that meal. So that's naturally going to slow down the digestion. But also, what are those food sources like? Um, are you having pop tarts, like you mentioned before? Or are you having a sweet potato, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that sweet potato is going to take way longer to digest. But it also depends on what phase you're in. I can have a whole food meal when we're contest lean, and I'm sure you experienced it where you're super hungry, like immediately after finishing the meal, and you feel like you can train 30 minutes after eating when you're in contest prep. Whereas if you do that in the off season, you're going to feel so stuffed and bloated, like you need to just wait more. Uh, You need to give your body more time to digest before you go to the gym and train. So it's pretty cool to see how our body isn't just stagnant and it's not always the same. Um, so these answers always change depending on the context.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really important to, uh, mention and, uh, things depend on what phase you are in as well as your level of experience. For sure. Um, so let's, yeah, let's say we've taken this person through their journey. They've gone through a recomp and perhaps lost a significant amount of weight. Um, what do you, recommend in terms of coming out of that phase and transitioning from a large amount of weight loss and for someone to be able to maintain that?
1: Yeah, Uh, I think it's important while you're going through weight loss, fat loss phases. um, It's really nice to take diet breaks for one to two weeks where the goal is no longer to lose weight and it's just to maintain and, and mitigate any fatigue that you've accumulated over the dieting phase um, that opportunity in those time phases should be used as an opportunity to teach the client or for the individual to learn like, okay, I lost X amount of weight. I can maintain this weight by eating just like I am now by living this lifestyle, right? Then they lose another 20 pounds or so. Okay, we diet break for one to two weeks, let's say. And that should teach the client that, hey, I'm no longer losing weight, but I'm also not gaining weight and I'm just maintaining this lifestyle. So, um, I think calorie tracking and macronutrient tracking is really important, but over time, you don't want to have to weigh out every single thing you're eating and stuff like that. So, um, you should use these phases to learn how your body feels in this phase, what your biofeedback is like, um, what appropriate portion sizes look like for you, Um, to to maintain that weight, and then just continuously practicing that. So, um, you know, some people transition into surpluses, um, which is, again, fine, and and their goal is weight gain. Some people want to just maintain that body weight, which is also fine, depending on where they're at and, and what their goals are. So they just need to use different phases throughout the diet as opportunities to learn more about themselves and what it's going to take to maintain uh, this new physique or this new uh, healthy lifestyle, so to speak.
0: Yeah, no, I think yeah. that's actually really underrated. Um, I think I think it was maybe Eric Helms who said, but he calls diet breaks practicing maintenance.
1: Mm-hmm. and I like
0: really like that way of putting it. Um, I think it's really important for people to get a good sense of where where they're at in terms of that number, and it kind of fluctuates depending on your body weight as well um i know for myself i guess like i wouldn't say that i'm a very talented bodybuilder in most aspects but i think one advantage i do have is that my body is very predictable i'm like very good at maintaining (laughs) Mm. um and i think when you have a good sense of that it it just makes it so much more flexible in terms of and having that confidence and knowing that you can come out anywhere and just at least hold on to where you are
1: yeah absolutely absolutely I think it takes a good, um, like a good sense of self and just being self-aware saying like, okay, this is what I've been doing. I can continue to do this and maintain where I'm at. Um, and if I make X, Y, or Z change, it might yield X, Y, or Z result, you know? So that's awesome, man. Yeah.
0: So that's been a really fruitful conversation in terms of building everything up, nutrition from the ground up, um, just about your own uh, research. What are your current
1: projects that are ongoing and what are you most excited about? Yeah, um, I'm excited about a lot of things. So that's uh, hard to pinpoint one thing. I'm currently working on my first meta-analysis. So nice. that's uh, a, new, a new challenge and that actually really excites me. Um, so I'm pumped about that. But we have a couple of studies going on in the lab. Uh, right now it's been put on hold because of COVID. So the last, um, you know, in-person randomized control trial I've been working on was an acute study looking at uh, actually carbohydrate mouth rinsing and how that may improve uh, training performance and um, also like subjective um, perceived recovery scores and stuff like that. So we did one semester of data collection and I just need about Eight to 12 more subjects to kind of wrap up um, that study's data collection. So, hopefully, I can do that starting January. Um, so, just waiting to see kind of what happens with COVID. Um, we also had a really cool volume study going on. Um, it was a collaborative study with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. And um, yeah, we're looking at so a lot of the previous training studies at volume. They take subjects, they recruit subjects, and then they put them in groups. Depending on the study, it might be five sets per week, 10 sets per week, 15 sets, 20 sets per week. Brad has previously done nine sets per week, 27 sets per week, or 54 sets per week. We have previously done 12 sets per week, 18 sets per week, or 24 sets per week. But all of these studies don't account for how many sets per week do those subjects train with before starting the study. So a lot of these subjects are going into this research study, and they might be doing less volume than they're used to. They might be doing the same amount of volume that they're used to, or they may be doing more volume than they're used to. So the results aren't, uh, I personally don't value the results that strongly because Mm -hmm. of that huge covariate. So what we're going to do with this study is we have subjects training in the lab, everything's going to be supervised but we've asked the subjects how many sets per week do you currently do for legs? What does your leg training currently look like? So we get all that information. We say, okay, they're doing X amount of sets of legs per week. Now, what, we, what we're doing in this study is we have a control group where they're maintaining the same amount of sets per week that they've previously done before starting the study. Mm. Then we have one group increasing their volume by 30%. Then we have one group increasing their volume by 60% from baseline. So I think this is going to be one of the coolest volume studies done to date for sure, Um, just because it's taking in that huge covariate going into it, right? Um, So people in the control group, you might have someone doing five sets per week and another person doing 15 sets per week, but that's because that was their previous baseline before starting the study and. and that has to be taken into account, especially when these studies are typically only 8 to 12 weeks long. Um, some subjects gain muscle, some subjects lose muscle, some subjects maintain. And so many people are just paying attention to the group means where we need we need better study designs that are giving us a more realistic snapshot of what's going on. So I'm really pumped about that. Um, and yeah. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of other things in the works too, kind of drawing a blank, but um, we have a couple of things in the pipeline that are currently being being written. Um, one just got accepted on repetition tempo. So that's got accepted in the JSTR, and then we're working on another um, publication in regards to interset stretching. So um, that's almost done too. We just need to submit it to a journal and go through the peer review process. So yeah a lot of things in the works, man.
0: Yeah, no, that that the volume study sounds really interesting. And I guess so yeah, like I guess you would come up sort of almost with like a, a delta volume rather than, you know, like just an absolute number. And I guess yes. ideally yes. finding some way to normalize, I guess, the volume somehow to that individual's um characteristics.
1: Yeah, and then we'll be able to look at every individual what their baseline volume was and just get, we've got a much better idea of what's truly going on. What's your hypothesis as to how the results might differ when you have introduced this? Um, I think the control group and the 30% increase group is going to have the best results. Um, The reason why I think the control group is actually going to grow really well, even while maintaining their volume is because when subjects train in the lab in this supervised environment, their training intensity is going to increase because we push them very, very hard. So mm-hmm. even though they're doing the same amount of total sets, I know that they're going to be training to a much closer proximity to failure. And it's just going to be like a much more intense training block for them than they're used to. So I think the control group and the 30% group are going to see the best results. And then I, I'm hypothesizing that, you know, if this whole MRV thing is is going to be observed, um, I'm hypothesizing that doing 60% more is just going to be too much, um, where these subjects are going to be under-recovered, um, so I think they're going to make the least amount of gains, um, but again, there's going to be outliers, there's going to be different individual responses for sure, but um, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens, I'm not, I, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. It's it's an
1: exciting time
0: to research for sure. For sure. All right. So uh, for the audience, where can they find you, Chris?
1: Yeah. So um, everyone listening, uh, thank you guys for tuning in. First and foremost, Uh, you guys can find me at schoolofgains.com. And uh, Gains is spelt with a Z. So that's where I I have all my educational content. Um, Free blog articles. videos uh, from my youtube channel and stuff like that Um, all the research that i've published in the past and that my team and i are currently working on that's kind of uh, up on there as well so you kind of get an idea of what projects are in the pipeline Um, and then all the training programs and uh, nutrition guidebooks that i sell are on there Um, so a lot of the stuff we spoke about today um, basically comes right out of the ultimate guide of body recomposition that jeff nippert and i worked on together um, so that can give you a ton of information on really how to customize and set up your diet, um, for each individual based on your specific context and needs. So everything's on school And then, um, I'm most active on Instagram. Um, been a little bit quiet recently for sure, but that's where I share most of my stuff. So that's just my full name. It's at Christopher Awesome.
0: We will put those links in the description. Thanks for being on on the podcast.
1: No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.